Hello and welcome to the Music Survival Guide, the independent musician's guide on how to survive in the music industry. My name's Phil, a mixing and mastering engineer with Vortis Sound Studios. I hope you're all doing well this week and hope you're all surviving out there and doing well. This week on the podcast, I've got an interview with Joe Montague, who's a remote session drummer. And he has a website, which is allyouneedisdrums.com. All this and more will be in the show notes. He is a great person to chat to about anything, 60s recording, Ringo Starr, Beatles, anything like that. He's a great joy to talk to. He's very enthusiastic on the subject, as you will hear. This almost became the longest episode that I ever put out. But be thankful if you have a short attention span, for I have chopped it in half. Controversial, maybe, but the episode is in half. So you'll hear half this week and half next week. Both bits are very good. Both bits are very worth listening to. I'm going to stop talking now. On with the interview. So today on the podcast, I am joined by Joe Montague, who is a session drummer, is probably the right description, from All You Need Is Drums. Joe, how are you? I am very well and happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Excellent. Welcome aboard. (laughs) It's probably not the right phrase, but there we go. So my first question is from the random question generator. And it is, (laughs) what's your favourite piece of clothing that you own? Oh my goodness. Actually, I think that's probably quite an easy one. <laughs> it's these pair of jogging bottoms that I've got on right now. <laughs> <laughs> they are. I mean, this is just gives you an insight into how much I overthink things. But for a long time, I wanted a pair of jogging bottoms that didn't look like traditional joggers. Like they weren't the sort of thing you're actually going to exercise in. And they had to be sort of a, a slimmer fit. And then I bought these in H&M. Are we allowed to say brand names on the podcast? Yeah, you can, you can bleep that out. <laughs> I'm, I'm fine with that. Yeah, other tracksuit bottoms are available. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I found these this pair and they're my absolute favourites and I've, I've not been able to buy another pair just in case. So I'm a bit concerned if they ever um, sort of wear thin. Give up the ghost. <laughs> yeah, so, well, but yeah, there you go. That's the answer. <laughs> wow, what, what an insight. That's the last thing I ever expected to find out. But there we go. <laughs> there we go. So my first kind of serious question um, and these two, these two, I guess the first two might actually be quite related. Is how did you get into music, and then what made you start drumming? Oh, that is interesting. So, my sort of earliest memories when I grew up, there was a piano in the house, and I started playing on piano at six, age six. I think I don't really remember that. We used to go to like a Yamaha music school. I don't know if they still exist or not now, and where you learn sort of do re mi fa so and all that kind of stuff. And we had a piano in the house and I remember having piano lessons. And then my second instrument was actually clarinet. When you're in primary and you get those letters that say, you know, do you want to learn an instrument? Um, And I wanted to learn saxophone, but I was only sort of eight years old. um, So I got told that I wasn't allowed (laughs) to learn saxophone. I had to learn clarinet. I got quite good at it before I decided to to sort of uh, put it to bed. Um, And then I got into... So my dad is a is a sort of amateur guitarist. So we always had a guitar in the house all the time. And I remember my dad playing guitar a lot. And he's into sort of, I guess, late 70s, 80s, and 80s sort of hair metal, Led Zeppelin, Iron Maiden, Aerosmith, that kind of thing. So that's what I grew up listening to. Um, and I remember watching Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure <laughs> and okay. Wayne's World. Um, and when Garth does the drum solo on Wayne's World, that was... I, that was it. I just was completely hooked on it. And I think it took a few a few years of asking for a drum kit before I finally got one for Christmas. 
And then I think it got ignored for a few years before I started to sort of take it seriously. And that's kind of it. That's that's where it's at. And I, I play a bit of guitar as well. And I think that's just come from my dad's guitar being around the house. And, you know, you get into a band at sort of age 12 and, and um, start making some terrible music. And he just bitten by the bug. And there was never, from there, there was never any question about what I wanted to do. It was always just going to be, I'm going to be a drummer. That's the end of it. I'm a bit jealous in a way. I, I tried to learn drums. So when I... <laughs> When I was nine, my mum had a spare drum kit, basically. And a I went, spare right. drum kit? I know. Mum, so I went, all right, I'll, I'll get some lessons. And I could not do it. So I became a bassist <laughs> instead. <laughs> but there we go. It's just half of the same coin, I guess. In a way. <laughs> yeah. So you got into playing drums and then you got into being in bands and things like that. So how did you make the leap from there to session drummer? So I was always pretty studious at the way that I did things. Um, you know, very, I guess I suppose it's the same now, but obviously I, I know how to deal with it better now. <laughs> you know, quite uh, like things to be right and was very like intent on practicing a lot. I did, I did um, when I got really into it, I did do an awful lot of practice. And um, I was, uh, I did a lot of things like Saturday music schools where I was playing percussion in orchestras and things like that. So quite a traditional background in music actually um so I could read music well and I was playing in sort of younger punk bands and covers bands and stuff like that and then when I was 15 I my drum teacher who who um was just a sort of a working drummer on the scene but quite a lot older I think he'd he'd been in touring bands and stuff for years and lived in Australia and worked out there for a long time um and then sort of settled into a nice life just doing a bit of teaching he passed on a debt gig to me so my first gig was for 65 pounds I think it was and it was playing 40 Dixie Chicks songs in a Dixie Chicks tribute night okay yeah so this is kind of gonna taken an odd turn but I <laughs> when I was about 13 my dad went to America and, and got into country music and um, he brought a country music tape back with him and from then on we've always been kind of interested in contemporary country you know, that sort of bluesy stuff, I guess the equivalent now would be like Chris Stapleton and that sort of thing I'm re- really into. Um, so I knew a lot of the Dixie Chicks things. So then I did that night and that was, you know, for like 15 years old. I mean, my dad had to drive me to rehearsals and, <laughs> and drive me to the actual gig. And that was a big eye opener because suddenly I had to learn a huge amount of material. So I wrote charts for everything. That's how I learned how to do charts. And then I got asked to join that band and we were just doing sort of pub gigs around the Milton Keynes where I grew up um, and the villages around it, sort of doing, you know, like 25 quid gigs, which was great. And I worked, I also worked as a crew member at a venue in Milton Keynes, sort of miking up and helping bands load in and out and that kind of stuff. So that was sort of Fridays and Saturdays when I wasn't gigging. And that was that. So then I was, I guess that was my sort of grounding in, working musician etiquette if you like you know working hard making sure that I turn up at with having learnt the things and you know learnt the music and that kind of stuff and then I kind of wasn't sure what to do with myself so I decided that I wanted to go to music college and I didn't actually get in anywhere the first time round. I only applied for three colleges and I didn't get in anywhere so then I went and had drum lessons with a guy called Bob Armstrong who died a couple of years ago um, he's taught a huge amount of renowned, you know, if you went down the list of like well-known session guys in the UK, Bob's taught a lot of them. Um, so he was, 
I was on his waiting list for lessons for a long time. And then just as I didn't get into college, I got the call off Bob's wife to say there's a slot opening if you want it. So then I got a normal job in a call centre and, and had lessons with Bob again, which was great. You know, that was a real sort of grounding. And I was travelling into London to go to do Nigel 2 rehearsals, um, sort of National Youth Jazz Orchestra, and sort of just actively practising an awful lot and sort of getting my ducks in a row. And then I went off to music college. And I've always been quite of an entrepreneurial mind. So when I was at college, the first thing I did was set up a function band. And then... Uh, and then that was that, sort of just gradually snuck into the scene that way. Um, <laughs> Stealthily. Yeah, just the normal thing of like you get, you know, once if you've got a function band, you can get people to dep in your band and then you can dep in bands because your name gets around a bit. And then when I left music college, I was already teaching quite a bit. Then I, you know, sort of, it just sort of seamlessly moved from from college to working as a, a teacher mainly and a few gigs and then gradually the gigs got more and more and I and I just did you know teaching got less and less um so that's kind of how I got into professional music um is is based, like through the network of music college essentially and then you moved I guess into session drumming as a specific thing that you did yeah so I I've always enjoyed playing for different people and when I was at college I, I I played a lot for I had I had a couple of bands that I was in you know like uh, bands I was actually a member of um, and then I also got my I guess my first proper session gig was for a, a singer-songwriter from Leeds called Sam Airy um, and he he's incredible and that was you know n- none of this is paid work or anything like that it's all just you know a guy from Leeds doing some pretty cool stuff and you know he was doing all of the usual sort of city festivals and little things like that you know sort of on the cusp of doing some cool stuff and then through that I got into a band called Dancing Years and that was just a you know um genuinely was in bed on a Sunday morning and I had my phone rang and it was a number I didn't see I didn't know and uh, it was, you know, hi, oh, hi, is that Joe? Yeah. Um, are you the drummer for Sam Airy? Yes. Um, do you want to come and do some recording in like half an hour? Because <laughs> <laughs> um, their drummer had, had, had not said he didn't want to do it for whatever reason. So then I did it. And then a week later, I was on tour with those guys doing a, doing a support tour for someone. And then I joined that band. And that became sort of my life for, for a good few years was being in that band but the that's the sort of usual story of nearly getting signed and then everything sort of falling apart. But I guess the contacts I made during that time were really important. So I was also doing, you know, I was still playing a bit with Sam and then a few other people here and there. Um, and But none again, none of this is paid work yet. You know, my, my main living is teaching. And then to move into sort of more session stuff, I suppose. So when Dancing Years folded which was about 2016 I a friend of mine who I just met through actually I guess it was not even I guess I doing a session for him he was a, a singer songwriter and I got asked if I wanted to play drums on one of his EPs and do some live stuff with him not paid again just a just a guy from Leeds um and I said yes and did that and then it turns out that he was a George Harrison impersonator in a Beatles show. Ah. <laughs> yeah, so here's where it starts to sort of get to where I'm at now. And the money in that world is pretty decent. Is it? Uh, yes. Interesting. <laughs> I, I, I don't really know a lot about the world of 
Beatles tribute bands? Well, the the sort of way I always explain it is we're a theatre show, so we're a cast member and a musician all at the same time, so we're kind of acting and performing. And it means that there's only five people involved in the show, which is all the, the cast and the sound guy, and that's it. So if, you know, suddenly the fees don't have to spread to 10 people. That's very true. Yeah. So the money in that kind of, I mean, don't get me wrong, there are there are still sort of pub Beatles tributes who go out for not that much money, but it's sort of when you get to a a certain level, the money's pretty decent. So then that job came up just as I just as Dancing Years finished. And I, I found out about it and I pestered my friend, Richard Petch, his name is, and we call him Petch. So I was going, Petch, get me in, get me in, you've got to get me in. No, I couldn't think of anything better than having to learn loads of Beatles songs. just thought that would be amazing. You know, what a lesson that would be. So yeah, I auditioned for that and I got the job. And that meant I could quit teaching and it was a full-time job. So I sort of did that. And then... When I quit teaching, my wife said to me, if you're going to stop doing teaching, you have to get a space to go and work at because otherwise you're just going to watch Netflix all day, (laughs) which is true. Sounds like someone who knows you very well. Yeah. So she was the one that prompted me to get a studio space. Um, And I kind of asked around a bit and ended up sharing one with another drummer. And that's when I started to get really into what you might call session drumming, doing paid songs for people and that was kind of like 2000 and I think it was 2017 so I ended up sort of moving into a different different topic here but um I ended up sort of setting the studio up with a you know reasonably cheap interface I messaged some producer mates of mine and said you know if you had a thousand pounds to spend on microphones what would you buy for drums good question yeah. Now and then I got a a list from about three different producers, and I sort of assimilated the list, if you like, or whatever the right word is, and and sort of chose what I thought was good. You know, at that point, I had no idea what was good, um, why things sound a particular way, or anything like that. And then I put an Instagram advert up that said, "If you want free drums, message me," <laughs> kind of thing. And um, I called it Free Sessions January, and I got about fifty. 50 songs in that month um so I was working all hours at the studio sort of just getting my getting my together basically like learning how logic works learning how to mic stuff up learning how to have a workflow and learn songs and deliver songs bounce audio out just in general deal with clients and then from there started to get a few oh I've got another track actually that you might want to do how much would you charge and I was like um 40 quid (laughs) Um, and then a a few years of doing that kind of stuff occasionally get the odd um, sort of bigger paying fee thing for an advert or something Um, and then when I launched All You Need Is Drums that was my first attempt at broadening my circle to the wider world as opposed to just friends and friends of friends and that's when the fees once you you know again a slightly different topic but once I'd sort of established myself as this is what I do it was easy to ask for whatever fee I would I felt comfortable asking for whereas when I was back at the beginning it was like there's no reason why I can charge you a particular rate because you don't really know me and you don't know what I'm capable of delivering so I need your custom more than you need my drums <laughs> um so yeah that's kind of what's led that's a you know um a brief version of, of how I've got to where I'm currently at it sounds like the especially the beginning of when you got all your gear and you were 
you were there with 50 or so songs to record. That sounds like a very hefty learning curve, I must say. Uh, it really was. Um, silly things like, I didn't realise you could export out of Logic all at once, like batch export. So I would put my faders, set my fa- uh, my locators in Logic, and then bounce, and like solo every track and bounce every track. And it would take me, my computer was an old one, and it would take me about half an hour to bounce stems out. Ouch. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it seems crazy to saying it out loud now, but that's what, that's what it was. And I remember a few people got back to me at the beginning was like, you, you're tracking all this quite quietly, man. And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to be conservative because I don't want it to clip. <laughs> Things like that. But that's what I needed, like low paying or no paying work that I didn't feel bad if I got it wrong. And sort of learning where's appropriate to edit drums and where's not appropriate to edit them and how different sounds work on different tracks and just sort of generally getting experience of of all that stuff. I mean, I got sent all sorts of stuff that month um, and I did it again the next year. And then the following year I did a, I did free sessions fortnight because I couldn't deal with a month <laughs> of it. <laughs> Too much. Yeah. And then last year I just didn't do it. In fact, last two years I've not done it at all because it's um, obviously works fine now. So um, I might do it at some stage as a bit of a, um, you know, just a nice thing to do. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's that was a huge learning curve, and I'm I'm very pleased that I did it. People may may have noticed the slight suggestion of what you're trying to get at there with your business name, which is all you need is drums. Just might might just get the the Beatles reference. <laughs> what 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 is it about '60s style drums that appeals to you? And is that the way that you drum, the way you approach drumming on a record? So I'd always been a fan of Ringo before I was in, involved with Beatles world. I was a fan of Ringo before the Beatles, actually. I had a, an iTunes playlist where I'd bought or potentially illegally downloaded. Oh, no, I know what it was. Somebody, one of my mum's friends, gave me a hard drive with all the Beatles material on, you know, all the archive stuff. Sounds um, legal. <laughs> yeah, this was years ago, like back in Napster days I'm talking about now. <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, so I pulled them all into into my iTunes, and I remember going Googling, you know, Ringo's best songs, and things like Rain, and She Said, She Said, and Tomorrow Never Knows, um, and just making a big playlist of all Ringo's best stuff. So that was kind of when I was in my mid to late teens that I was doing that kind of thing. And I've always been into simple playing. I don't really have any chops, and I've... This is a bit of a weird thing to say, but I'm going to say it, because one of the... When I perform live or tried to do anything chopsy ever, I get would get a bit of like anxiety about what I was going to do. And that sort of manifested itself into just me being a simple player <laughs> because I wasn't, I just didn't seem to be cut out for that sort of like flamboyant drumming style. Um, so I just decided, that I think I made a decision when I was sort of in my early 20s that that's just not how I roll. <laughs> um, you know, it doesn't, doesn't suit me. I'm not going to try and keep up with the Joneses. I can't. It doesn't interest me. I like I like this playing for the song thing. And all the drummers that I've ever sort of followed the careers of or looked up to have all been those sorts of people, those sorts of players. People that, often drummers that a lot of people haven't even heard of. I mean, the internet's a great thing now, but, you know, I'd go and find out who's played on, like, you know, um, old country records that you haven't heard, or like I'd hear a drummer in the UK on a on from just from a singer songwriter, and the drumming would be really simple, and I'd be looking up who's that drummer and, and where do they live and what do they do, and the sort of Dave Weckles of the world didn't really interest me. Um, 
So anyway, that's kind of the background into that that kind of stuff. And then when the sort of vintagey tone has always interested me. I like one up, one down on a kit. I like thicker sounding drum sounds. And I've always I've like um, gravitated towards those sorts of sounds. And then when I set up, um, initially it was just my, my studio, just as it was. I realized after a while that people were, were coming to me because they liked the Ringo-iness of my playing. And I was getting the same reference tracks all the time. Like John Lennon tracks, like solo John Lennon tracks, I kept getting sent them as references, like Woman was one. And there just seemed to be this thing that everyone was asking me about. So I kind of tried to work out what that was. <laughs> and I thought, well, it's it's Ringo, isn't it? You know, I've got to, I've got to, um, you know, I may as well... If that's what everybody says that I play like, I may as well just do that. Lean into it. Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of how I ended up. I actually was going to call the company Vintage Drum Recording. And then it was as I was writing the message out, uh, I was doing some spiel for the website and I I was doing the how it works section. And I titled the how it works section as all you need is drums. And then I was like, hold on. And then scrapped it all and started again. <laughs> it's a much better name for, for what Yeah, I think so. <laughs> but it kind of, it it sums up, for me, all you need is drums. You you immediately know that I'm going to play drums on your songs. I'm into Ringo, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna play loads of crap all over your song. I'm going to be respectful of what you do, and I think all of that is encompassed in that one little name. I think. <laughs> I hope. Is uh, does that approach affect the way that you record? So obviously, we could get very 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 technical with this if you wanted, but. Um... You know, very, very early Beatles is, from my knowledge, functionally two mics. You have one on top of the drum kit as an overhead, one in front of the drum kit as a, a sort of kick mic, but more really just a drum mic. Yeah. <laughs> and then obviously when you get to the end of the Beatles, you're talking about multi-miking setups that are a bit more like, quote unquote, modern drumming. So what's your technical approach to that kind of thing? So I deliberately set out to have options for people so i've got numerous different setups within a setup if you like and um, so i use actually you have a d19 and a coles as mono overheads which were both mono overheads for beatles i have the outside kick mic that you've just set, talked about i have stereo rooms which could be just a mono room if you want um so within I, I mean, basically, in my experience, no one, and this is, I, I, this is something that I guess it bothers me slightly. It doesn't bother me too much, but I wish people would use minimal miking more. And um, you know, I send people about fourteen different mics, but then we're not with the intention of them using all fourteen. You know, it could be that you prefer the sound of the coals as a mono overhead, so you don't have the the D nineteen in there. That's kind of my intention or be, you know, be brave and use a mono overhead. Don't, don't worry about using the stereo overheads or just use the room mics or don't use, don't use the close mics on the, on the drums at all or that kind of thing. And it just means it also, it means from my point of view as a player, whatever, whatever sound I'm going for, whether it's like a dead seventies kind of vibe, like a late Ringo sort of thing, the close mics are there to get that sound and I can, it's easily accessible for me. But then if I want to do an early Beatles thing, I'll just use the AKG and the and the outside kick mic and some rooms and that's that's it. And away you go. <laughs> yeah, so I've got 
I see it as a bit of a toolkit that I have, and I'm still not quite there yet. The one thing I don't have, so my next thing is going to be a high-quality large diaphragm condenser room mic, but it won't. It will be somewhere between a room mic and just a general kick mic, uh, kit mic, and I'm going to run that through an 1176. And that's going to be almost like a parallel compression thing as a, an option for that. And then I also want to have a Glyn Johns setup um, permanently incorporated into what I do. So I, it's just even more options. And the tricky thing is is getting all the phase and stuff right. Um, because if, you know, obviously if you want to use Glyn Johns, but say you want to use a close mic on the snare, I've got to make sure that the snare is also in phase with the mono overheads and the the stereo overheads and the Glyn Johns mic. And it's... Makes my head want to explode. <laughs> everyone loves everyone loves phase. Yeah, right? checking for phase. Um, I mean, you, you're drawing my head into nerdy questions, so I'm 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 probably going to lean into them. And if you if you're if dear listener, this goes over your head. Worry not, worry not. That's why there are people like Joe as a session musician <laughs> to work out these things for you. Yeah. So I I found so I was actually mixing a blues bluesy rock band. Uh, few months ago now and they had quite a minimal drum setup and i loved it i absolutely loved it like really lent into it and i think to be honest a lot of people's concern about using quite minimal setups is that you know in a lot of modern music quote unquote modern music be that rock or pop or anything like that there is a tendency for real hi-fi drums where everything is mic'd up and it's all gated and it's all really controlled but I, th- I do. I do just think it might be a fear thing where it doesn't quite sound as "quote unquote" good as it could if there were more mics. I don't know what you think about that. It's not really a question. Well, no, I, I do. I do have thoughts on that. This is something I've thought about in the way that I approach things. Um, my production style is very. Um, what's the right word for it? I like doing things right. Uh, doing things a first time or a first few times. And I've learned over the years to not not worry about the this this like minutiae of the details of things. And you know, it's a conversation I've had a lot of times. And an example that comes up in in conversation with one particular person that I I have this conversation with often is about the level of the hi hat. You know, hi hat mics one of those things that people have or they don't have. I have no, one because bit it, bit it. I well, I, I'm the same. It's constantly on mute, but. He said to me once, no one cares how loud, you know, what level your hi-hat is. No one's going to say, you know, if you've got, a, don't get me wrong, right? If you're, if you're using minimal drum setups, you've got to have a player that knows how to balance themselves. You know, that's really important. And I think that, you know, I'm kind of happy as a, in my production style to say, that's the way that the mics are set up. That's the sound that's coming out. Let's just leave it as that. Like it, it doesn't, you know, that's, that's cool. And like, that's the way that they did things. This is why I'm so fascinated by the sixties stuff because they didn't pour over, you know, is that symbol slightly too loud or is that this and that, that they just did it. And you know, that was what they captured and they had to deal with whatever they captured and that committing is that it's a commitment, isn't it? And I, I like the idea of, of committing to stuff, whether it's not quite perfect or not, because if it's not quite perfect, that, that gives you a bit of excitement in what you're doing Obviously, there's a line, but um, it just doesn't bother me so much. You know, when I listen to my drums, I don't, 
you know, I, I tweak levels of things, but I, you know, quite happily just listen to a mono overhead and a kick mic and be perfectly happy with how it's sounding. Um, you know, I'm not thinking, oh, I wish that snare drum was very slightly louder or, you know, I'm just, that's not how my brain works. It just, I'm, I'm, I deal with what's presented with me and that informs the next lot of decisions. And as long as the vibe's right, that's, that's fine for me. I mean, unfortunately, maybe. Unfortunately for me, I'm a mixing engineer, so <laughs> I do worry that the snare's too quiet. So in fact, on this um, Bluesy Rut, it's a band called Chambers. On this Bluesy Rut track I was mixing, I didn't have a snare mic. And, you know, I mix a lot of quite modern rock and metal, and part of my head was going, no, I need one. And I was like, no, it's okay. There's the room mics, there's the, the Glyn Johns overheads were fine. And it was amazing. And the snare was one of my favourite things about that drum sound. Well, that's it. And you can... There's other ways of you dealing with that without pushing up a close mic on a snare. You know, you can EQ the snare to fit in the mix nicely or EQ the mix to, to accommodate the snare nicely. And I think that that's... I, I like that. You know, it's, it's you're not tweaking the drummer too much. The drummer's just represented by that. And if it's not sitting in the mix quite right, you can just adjust a couple of things to make that, make it sit better sort of orally after the fact, if you like rather than sort of just immediately reverting to bang a, bang a close mic on the snare higher. I actually don't really particularly like the sound of a close mic snare, if I'm completely honest. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. It's an interesting topic. <laughs> the room mics make a snare, If you, for those who may not be in the know. The room mics and the overheads, to be fair, really do make a snare sound, at least to me. You may um, find this question controversial. I don't know. This is just, can I say this popular... A popular myth, let's put it that way. So the common misconception about Mr. Ringo yes. is that his parts in the Beatles are very simple and very boring and that he is, in fact, the worst band member <laughs> or everyone's least favourite. Like That's that's the, the bluntly what people think. So w- what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> I mean, obviously, completely contradictory. <laughs> I How do I phrase this nicely? Well, Ringo is, um, so like his journey was through the sort of club circuit of of England and then sort of in Hamburg as well. He actually was in Hamburg before he was in the Beatles, he played with a guy called Rory Storm. And, you know, that's kind of unmiked, just relentless sort of rock and roll-y, you know, like R&B really. And you can hear it in the first couple of Beatles albums, he's playing quite, you know, sometimes they're creative parts, but he's mainly just, you know, supporting the song in a sort of, like like a drummer in a punk band would, if you like. You know, it's just lots of energy and, and propelling the band forward. And then as the albums go on, his parts get more and more creative. And he he is just the ultimate egoless song drummer you know he fits into a song perfectly there's no there's no Ringo in any of it not not shoehorned into it obviously there's tons of Ringo in it but he's you know that's that thing of does a fill when the when the singer stops singing and it's that kind of thing that he's just an extension of the melody and everything he does is to support the song and nothing is for the sake of doing it it's all got a reason to be there and that's that's a huge skill in itself. Um, you know, it might not be particularly technical, although there's some parts of Ringo's stuff that are really hard, but maybe, you know, not technical in the sort of what we've got used to as being a technical thing now. But, you know, I defy anybody to play for the song 
as as a you know I challenge anyone to play for the song as well as he ha- as he can do you know it's unbelievable how you know how you can be so out of the way but also get so much of your personality in the song all at the same time is fascinating and if you really really drill down into into the songs as you know as much as I have you you can have nothing but appreciation for what he does the subtleties in what he does are unreal um, and they're not by accident they're deliberate you know a lot of what he does is deliberate. You know, like adding tiny little kicks in second verses just to, it's just so there's a difference, but you don't realize there's a difference or that kind of stuff. I hear a lot that his time is poor, and that's not true. <laughs> He's better than Pete Best, from what I understand. Well, exactly. Um, but, it's, you know, they think about a lot of those early tracks are pieced together. You know, they'll have recorded five versions of a song and then chopped in particular bits and the, t- the tempo is perfect through all of it you wouldn't know where the joins are he does speed up and slow down on particular songs but for me that's more of a um a show that he is playing for the song you know we who says a song needs to stay in the same tempo if it's got to lift in energy then you know why not do a tempo shift you know we, we sort of get taught as drummers that we've got to stay the same all the time and that's just not the case and i don't think he was doing it because he's bad, like a bad player, he was rushing because that's what the song required of him. It needed energy. You know, he, he wasn't even thinking about it. He was just going with what the song needed. You know, back to that same thing. Um, so there we go. <laughs> it's a good defence. I mean, the, the the thing that always strikes me about his playing is he often throws in something that works for the song, but it's not what I expect. So probably the most famous example I can give, and I'm I'm 99% sure it's the right song, so I hope I'm getting this right. She Loves You, the, the chorus, there is no symbol at all. It's all on the toms and on the snare, if I remember rightly. Yes. And I always assumed that he was doing probably what any drummer from the 70s onwards would do, which is go, this is the chorus, this is the exciting bit, let's throw in symbols all over the shop and there's not a single one and it's really surprising and I, I didn't even notice that that was the case until I actually listened to it but it's a really good but bold move to be honest there's a lot of a lot of that uh, surprising surprising things and I I love it and I, for me recording it gave me a lot of confidence to do to do similar things because often in the studio what feels normal to play you know what we've thought you know is almost like a preconception that you come in with that in the chorus you've got to do this and in a verse you've got to do this actually like I did a song um this afternoon and didn't play the hi-hat at all (laughs) just kick and snare and that was against my um sort of my preconceived notion of what a song should have but it worked brilliantly the hi-hat part was taken up by some shakers and things because it still needed a bit of forward momentum, but hi-hat wasn't right. And I think hearing Ringo play things, or like having to learn Ringo's unconventional things, m- makes you go, ah, oh, that serves the song in a way that I didn't actually realise you could do, and and helps inspire how I want to serve a song when I approach a track. So it's, yeah, it's always always surprising, is, is what I always think about Ringo's playing, to be honest, in a good way. Oh, I've cut myself off how controversial but there we are 
As I say, the next half will come out next week. So that is it for another episode of the Music Survival Guide. If you enjoyed it, then please leave me a review wherever you listen to the podcast. I really appreciate all of them. Please also share it with any friends and bandmates if you thought it was useful. I also have the Music Survival Guide community on Facebook if you want to go there. Otherwise, I will see you and Joe next time. <laughs>